0: Lord, as we come to the Word again today, we need Your aid. We need the teaching of the Spirit of God. We need conviction, change, growth. And we come to You and plead with You in Your kindness to us as our Father, that You would meet us here with mercy. That You would instruct and direct that we would gain under the Word, what you desire today. There are those who are with us, who gather with us that know not Christ as Savior. And we pray in their behalf that you would draw them to yourself and open their eyes to see what they cannot see in their own strength. For each of us, Lord, as we come before this Word, we cannot see on our own. And we ask that you would enlighten our eyes, convict us, teach us, and change us. We plead that under the teaching of the Spirit, great good would come of our time here together in the Word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. We've confessed as an assembly this morning in song, in word, and prayer, that Jesus Christ is Lord. We gladly confess as born-again believers that Jesus is Lord over every square inch of our lives. This includes the inner space of our thoughts, our attitudes, our dreams, and our affections. It includes every relationship. It includes how we view our bodies. And yes, Jesus Christ is Lord of the bedroom. His creative design, His good counsel regarding sexuality are calibrated for our joy, They are calibrated for His glory as the good giver of every good gift. So we read earlier, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today and chapter 6, we read there in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now an early Christian tradition insisted that sexual pleasure was not a good way to glorify God with your body. They claimed that celibacy, and if that word's not familiar, that just means that there is no sexual activity in your life at all, that celibacy was superior to marriage. It was more godly. It drew us closer to the Lord. And so especially hermits and monks and nuns endured all manner of deprivations to avoid sexual activity, convinced that that was a superior way to honor the Lord. I read this week of an early church hermit, poor guy. He rolled around on a bed of thorns to curb his sexual desires, torturing himself to remain celibate. And for centuries then, celibate followers of Christ were revered for their superior spirituality. This tradition continues to our day in some form, too often with tragic results as when children are exploited by clerics unprepared to keep their vows of celibacy. Well, one of the passages of Scripture that's used to support the notion that pleasures of marital intercourse are inferior to celibacy is the text before us this morning. Many have read this passage as a defense of celibacy, as a superior to marriage. And marital intercourse is a mere concession to human weakness. And there are churches in name, Christian churches throughout this land, where people attend today in that mode of thinking. Marital intercourse is a concession to the weak. The strong, the truly spiritual, are those who lead us and have made vows of celibacy. Well, many have read this text to confirm that type of thinking. I believe it's a false reading of the text, but before we get to the heart of what Paul was actually saying, we've got to bridge two worlds, and that is, first of all, the world of the Corinthian church. If you follow me here, this gets a little bit deep on some level, but it's really important that we understand where the letter's being addressed, where it's being directed, Paul is addressing a church influenced by Hellenistic dualism. That is, the Corinthians generally held a very low view of the body. The goal of life was to escape the body, to escape in some way into the spirit realm. And one practical response of this way of thinking is that the body should be deprived, if not even punished, in order to tame it like a wild horse. The second response is that the body is meaningless, so do with it whatever you want. It belongs only to this passing world. The body will be left behind in dust. What does it matter what you do with it? The Corinthian society was also enamored, as we've considered through the weeks, with these traveling philosophers who competed for followers, peddling mostly dualistic teaching of some sort. Here's the way to escape the fallen evil world. Here's the way to tap into the greater realm of the spirit beyond. Some type of variation on this thinking. Now this was very fortunate for many in the Corinthian church, saying, wow, we've hit the mother load here. In Christianity, we have found the philosophy. We have found the great way of truth and knowledge. And they married this together with what one is called spiritualized eschatology. That is, we're already in the realm of the Spirit. We're already, in a sense, beyond and escaping this world in which we live. And so they saw themselves as liberated from the evil body, living in that spiritual plane as the envy of the world around them, now that they've discovered Christianity. <clears throat> all right. Say so say that's kind of some heady stuff. But what did it mean? Let's get into the church itself. What did it mean? In an assembly such as ours, there were individuals there, where some of the men in the church were having prostitutes for dessert after meals at the pagan temples. That's a problem that Paul wants to address. Secondly, there were some married couples, perhaps mostly women, who were practicing celibacy in marriage, which is likely why some of the church's men were having prostitutes for dessert. And I've said it that way purposefully. Hang on to that line having them for dessert that's their world and that's not our world right it's mean, a long ways from where we are what we're dealing with what concerns you and me as we come to the gathering here today but that's the church that paul's addressing our world is slightly different certainly One of the things that we hear in our world when it comes to this type of thinking is I must have absolute authority over my own body. So absolute is this authority, I can look at my genitalia and say, nope, not who I am. My body will not dictate my gender. I will dictate my gender based on how I feel and what I determine will make me happy, even if it means I get away from my body. Or from another angle, keep your laws off my body. If I want to destroy the person living temporarily in my womb, that is my business, not yours. My body is my body. I'm free to do with it whatever I want. You have no say, and if you think you do, you are seeking to crush me as a person and who I am. Or from another angle, I'm free to have sex with whoever I choose, outside of marriage, if I want, with someone of the same sex, if I want. You have no right to critique what two consenting adults want to do. What God thinks? Who cares? That's our world. As the Apostle addresses people in his world, his words provide light to us in our world. We'll have to do some plowing and some redirection because we're not dealing with the problem that he's dealing with, but we deal with this issue. So in chapter 6, he addresses those who are visiting prostitutes. Notice in verse 12 through 20 of chapter 6, he goes at this and says, you're doing this because you don't know who you are in Christ. You are joining a member of the body of Christ with prostitutes at these pagan temples. And this must stop in deference to holiness and faithfulness to me, to the Lord. In chapter 7 now, he turns to this other issue, weird as it seems to us, of those who were practicing celibacy in marriage. Though married, they were abstaining from intercourse, wrongly concluding that this honored God probably tapping into this spiritualized eschatology that we're already, so to speak, I'm not saying they said this, but so to speak, we're already angels, where there's no marrying or giving in marriage, we're already there, we're already in heaven, and they're using their Christianity as a reason for this practice. In fact, it's likely that some of them were even looking at the Apostle Paul and saying, you're single. We don't see you trying to get married. So it seems good then that a person doesn't ever have sexual relations. Paul begins now to address that here in chapter 7 and verse 1. Verse 1, here's the Corinthian thesis. Celibacy in marriage is spiritually superior. That's what's driving them to do what they're doing. So he goes to them now, and to their questions, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, after chapter 6, he now begins to address questions they had written to him. It is unlikely, I think, that these were earnest, humble questions. They're probably pushed back to his earlier letter, chapter 5 and verse 9. There's probably an edge to these questions, but he now gets to them, and though they may be argumentative, he is seeking to teach them wisely here, and he then says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Do you notice there the quotation marks in the ESV? I think that's going to help us. But, first, literally, what he's saying is it's desirable or suitable for a man not to touch a woman. But touch was a euphemism for sexual intercourse, and so we have, I think, a right translation here. But again, I think that the quotation marks are the right understanding. He's not saying, this is what I think, as much as he is saying, this is your slogan. It's exactly what's happening in chapter 6 and verse 12. He's quoting them, all things are lawful for me, this is what you say. But he takes that then, that jumping off point, and he corrects them. Same thing here. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's good for an individual not to have sexual relationship. That's what you're saying. But he's going to now instruct them and push them in a different direction. In keeping with their ascetic bent, some were claiming that celibacy is superior. It shows control over the body, if not liberation from the body. Not our world, but it's their world. In verse 2 and down through verse 7, Paul then will refute this position and say that marital intimacy is equally God-honoring. Verse 2, "...but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband." That has been often read as, verse 1, this is Paul's view, it's best not to have be married. So, but verse 2, we've got to concede that it's just important because people aren't that strong. That's how this has typically been read. But if we realize that verse 1 is their statement, verse 2 is now actually his correction to their position. He's saying... I'm going to push back here. What you're saying is not entirely wrong. In many regards, it is indeed good for a man not to touch a woman. But notice this phrase in verse 2. Each should have. Each should have. The meaning of this phrase is uncomfortably specific for a church setting. But the Holy Spirit put it here, not Dan. And so here we go. But earlier I mentioned that some men of the Corinthian church were having prostitutes at pagan temples for dessert. That's how he's talking here. Each one of you should be having your wife. Each one of you should be having your husband. So you say it's good that one not touch sexually. But I'm saying to you, it is good for this to be taking place within marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. You're claiming that it's universally superior to be celibate. And you are applying that belief in the context of marriage. But I'm saying to you that God designed husbands and wives to enjoy marital intimacy. Not catching my meaning? Let me clarify verse 3. This is where we see it's really starting to hang together and the key that unlocks the meaning. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Here he's moving away from just the temptation idea and saying that there is actually a covenant here that's to be worked out. Conjugal rights, a covenant of marriage includes a promise to give one's body away to one's mate. So intercourse in marriage is not an okay idea if you're okay with the idea. It is a calling that one commits to honor in an act of loving regard for one's mate. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Just putting it that way in this context was radical to speak of a woman this way. The mutuality of this instruction in verse 3 is countercultural and was for centuries. But he puts it that way purposefully, and likewise, the wife to her husband. And if that's not clear enough, Paul sharpens his pen again. Let's try it again. Verse 4 For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. But the wife does. We notice here the countercultural transformative power of the gospel and life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is radical teaching. I do not have absolute authority over my body. The thought is so deeply offensive in our culture. I do not have absolute authority over my body. Chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. Could not be more clear. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ redeemed you. So glorify God in your body, which is not your own. It belongs first to God. Six, nineteen, and 20. And then secondly here, verse 4 of chapter 7, I yield my body to the interests of my mate. I give that away. Laying aside rights and claims. Now let's stop, we've got to here, and recognize that this verse, verse 4, a wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, has become the source of much abuse of men over women. This verse has been, I've seen it in the counseling sessions, from time to time, this verse has been used as a bludgeon twisted to mean a husband has rights and a wife has duties in contrast we witness mutuality here so for instance if she says not tonight that is the word he will honor as a loving husband the idea that this can be used to manipulate and to harm and to be selfish is a thousand miles from what paul's saying Now, obviously, as we look at verses three and four, there's going to be a lot of give and take. We're not identical human beings in marriage. In loving deference to one another, there will be a labor of love that takes place in this sense. But there is here no room for two things. First, selfishly demanding to have. And second, selfishly refusing to give. That's gone in Paul's instruction. So, verse 5 then, do not deprive one another. Do not deprive one another. That's a strong Greek word, it speaks of robbery. They're not to rob one another of that pleasure that God has designed. To do so defrauds one's mate. But Paul now qualifies his warning here. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps, doesn't have to be, but perhaps, by agreement, both mutually coming to this understanding, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Isn't prayer to God always superior to marital intercourse? Wouldn't prayer always be superior? Paul's saying, nope. No. No. By agreement, for a limited time, verse 5, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control, so you are to come together again. Paul is no dualist, he is no legalist, he is no ascetic. Intimacy in marriage, he understands, is the Creator's good gift, and even prayer should, be, should not displace that physical pleasure, except by agreement for a limited time that ends. So Paul's counsel is come together, otherwise Satan will tempt. Mates who unwisely withhold conjugal pleasure from their spouses are not contributing to their mate's sanctification, they're contributing to their temptation. That's what he's saying. Mutually satisfying conjugality in marriage is a God-honoring preventative against sexual sin. Now that does not mean that if one's mate sinfully refuses to fulfill that desire, that one is free and has an excuse to find some other outlet. Does not mean that. Indeed, the single adults among us here, the widows among us here, might be saying at this point, wait, what about me? I have no such outlet. Why is he talking about that? Paul will have more to say about that soon and as the chapter unfolds, but we should remember here that this is probably why some men were visiting prostitutes. He does not go lightly on them. Your body doesn't belong to you. Get out of those places. But, He does draw it back here, perhaps, to these women who are withholding this right to their husbands out of some sense of superior spirituality. You've got this all wrong, he says. Now, the ESV, I think, errs here by separating verses 6 and 7 as a separate paragraph, and so it muddles the point by, and then it additionally muddles the point by switching the order of the Greek text. Uh, it's not causing any major problems. But if we see this rightly, forget the paragraph division. And you see the phrase in verse 6 that says, I, uh, not a con- by, n- now as a concession, not a command, I say this. It starts with, this I say. This, what I've been talking about, I say as a concession. What's the concession? If we misread the text, the concession is, I'll give it up, some of you have got to get married because you're so weak. That's not the concession. The concession he's making is what he said in verse 5. By agreement, for a time, so that you can pray. I'll make that concession together you're going to decide as a couple that we're going to give this time to focus entirely on the Lord, I'll make that concession. That may be temporarily a legitimate practice. That's his concession. Verse 7, And I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. I wish that all were as I myself. That is, he is a single celibate man. As a Jew, as a man of some means and a Roman citizen, it is nearly impossible to believe that Paul had not been married. Uh, They did not marry in that day for romantic reasons. It was a contractual matter between parents putting all of that together, the wealth with which Paul grew up, the importance of his position in the world, almost impossible to believe he hadn't been married. But he might have lost his wife. Uh, She might have died. She may have divorced him when he became a Christian. Some believe that. I don't think there's any proof of that, but it's possible. And it could be. Somehow this guy was just so smart and so into his books that he just wouldn't get married i we don't know it doesn't really matter and i think he speaks here high in a, in hyperbole that is he he's saying i wish everyone was like me no, don't nail him down to that he's just speaking using a figure of speech here you want to know what he thinks about marriage look at ephesians 5 and 6 but it is a strong adversative that we find here but i wish that all were as, or, or i wish that all were as i myself am but this is this is a big but it's a, an adversative that is each individual has his own gift from god one of one kind that's celibate like i am and one of another kind that's married like most of you both are a gift God gives to some believers the gift of celibacy. Now widows, single adults, do not confuse the gift of celibacy with a desire not to be married. They're not the same thing. People with the gift of celibacy often have strong sexual desires. But God gives to them a special grace to overcome temptation. Further, many lifelong singles desire to be married and to have children. That doesn't mean they don't have this gift. Wanting to get married, wanting a family, does not mean that you have been missed, passed over, with the gift of celibacy. The gift of celibacy is a capacity to walk with God such that sexual temptation is no distinctly powerful hindrance to your walk with him it's there but in the grace of god he's giving victory that was paul's state and he says it's a happy state it's a good place to be it is not a curse it is not deprivation Any single adult, any widow who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life possesses everything that can bring lasting joy in God's presence. That is a gift as is marriage. Did you catch that in Paul's prayer today? So beautifully put. If we have the substance, we don't need the shadow. We have Christ, and that is enough. And I say that specifically to those who would love to be married, who wish that their husbands were still alive, who who wish that God would bring to them a husband. You have the substance. You have Christ. But Paul will not go down the ascetic line and say, therefore, marriage is unimportant. It's good. It's beautiful. It is a gift. It is God's provision for us in our sanctification. And so withholding marital rights, as he describes it here, is folly. As is our resisting the marriage of individuals who are struggling sexually. I think there's certainly counsel in a place of... Where it would not be wise to be married, but we need to understand this is part of the equation. Well, yeah, you know, talking about this with everybody today in this way, there's been a lot of pastoral self-pity this week. I mean this isn't an easy topic to bring up to a company where it doesn't apply directly to half of us, in a direct sense of marriage. But what does talk of marital sex have to do then with children among us? Should they be here? What does talk of conjugal relations have to do with single adults, with widows among us? Certainly verse 7 is applicable. There are important principles here, obviously, for married couples in these verses, but first let's pan out and consider what this text means to all of us it says in no uncertain terms, Jesus Christ is Lord of everything. You see how the relationship with Christ is permeating the bedroom here. It is giving direction to it. This isn't some sex talk. This is Christ is Lord talk. Marriage, we know, is given. The shadow that is given, it is a display of the mystery of of that relationship between Christ and His church. It is a tangible, visible display of how that relationship works. We sang of it today, I will glory in my Redeemer. Look at those words again this afternoon. And you see again and again this theme there. As with Psalm 45 that we sang. But verse 4 describes the kind of relationship that says what? I... Am yours. I give myself to you, body and soul. There's something otherworldly in that. I give away who I am to another. When we think of Christ in that equation, do you see it? He chose us as his bride. And he gave his body away in devoted love as a living sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sin. Nothing sexual in that whatsoever. But he takes the place of a husband and he lays down his life for her, for his bride. Do you see it in his words as he institutes the Lord's Supper, This is my body, which is for you. My body, for you. Take and eat. He withholds no good thing from us. And invites us to walk with Him in love and to fellowship at His table. Take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. And on the other side of the equation, the church, chapter 6 and verse 19. You see it there in the reverse. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. And so we are called as Christians in relationship with Christ to give our body to Him. No holds barred. Give it away. I belong to you, body and soul. That's what marriage is picturing. That beautiful oneness of Christ and His church where there is a giving away of one's body to the other without hesitation or restriction. And so for singles and widows, there is an opportunity here that is displayed, even a text like this that's so pointed. A call to complete devotion to Christ, which involves a giving away of your body. In other words, a giving away of your sexual desires to operate under Christ's lordship in holy celibacy. I wish that all were as myself, says Paul. That's the giving away that you do. You give away your desires to walk with Christ in fellowship according to His design. For the married, we should revel in God's goodness. Think about it in this world. This world is so wrongly calibrated. God comes to us and says, this is my gracious gift to you. You A man, you, a woman, coming together with your wonderfully compatible differences and saying to one another, I give you this, I am yours. I give my body away to you for your enjoyment, for our intimacy as a couple, in a lifelong covenant of love, under God's smile. We see in this passage... Verses 2 and 5. Marriage is not the answer to one's struggles with sexual lust. Yet marriage is God's gracious aid in the battle to overcome temptation. We want to recognize in our counsel to our children, to troubled marriages, to singles, as they're working forward, to recognize this connection. Marriage is a good thing. And where there is significant sexual struggle, Marriage is an answer. It is not the answer, but it is part of the equation. Verse 3, we learn that physical intimacy in marriage is a gift from God designed for mutual pleasure in the satisfaction of natural desire. This is God's goodness. This brings glory to Him. Not something off limits. And we aren't closer to God by being celibate. We're closer to God in celibacy when we give ourselves away to the Lord but not by avoiding marriage verse 4 teaches us that, pun, that punishing rejecting or ignoring your mate by withholding conjugal relations is sinful it is not God's counsel, it is not good and just as significantly demanding sex or demanding what is unpleasant to your mate is equally sinful One's body is to be freely given away in both directions. Never pressured. Never coerced. Only loved. Verse 7, Celibacy as an unmarried believer is a noble calling that involves an outpouring of God's grace. I say it involves that. God supplies that grace through time. And finally, verses 2, 4, and 7, the marriage of one man and one woman, covenanting to give themselves away to one another, body and soul, until parted by death, is a beautiful gift from God. It is not something that everyone enjoys. Paul was not enjoying that at that moment, if he ever had. Jesus did not go down that road. It was not necessary. It is not necessary. It is not the path for all but we lift it up as a good gift. Under God's watchful eye, according to His leading and guidance, with Christ as Lord of all, marriage is to be a display of the love between Christ and His bride. and When God brings us into that relationship, it is to be a relationship of love. We have our distinct callings, Paul says. Some called to celibacy, some to the office of marriage. But in our various callings, we celebrate together this truth, that Christ is the Lord. He is the Lord of our bodies, the Lord of our bedrooms. He is the Lord of our todays. He is the Lord of our tomorrows. He is Lord. And there is no nook or cranny in our lives that should be seen as outside that lordship. We give it all to him. As his bride, we give our bodies to him. As he has given his body to us, dying to pay the cost of our sin and securing for us an eternal home with him. Let's pray. Lord, it is only... Right, that we give you thanks for the frankness, the bluntness of the Bible. We are thankful that it doesn't scoot around the edges and prove too bashful, too retiring to address the issues that really do affect us, even those that are very intimate and private. Lord, you do so in such a way that's right. No sensationalism, no voyeurism, but rightly explaining to us the beauty of the gifts that are ours in Christ. And I plead in behalf of those widows among us who grieve the loss of their husbands and the loss of a relationship they so much would desperately like to continue. May they set their focus on the coming of our Savior and of the forgiveness of sins. May they give themselves away, body and soul, to You. We pray in behalf of those single adults that would so long to be married, would love to see a family raised and to know the joy of this, Lord, I pray that the mystery of their life and the mystery of their circumstances should they remain single for life would ever be given over to You as the substance of the shadow. They would find in You their strength and learn to rejoice in the grace that You give to walk in holiness within singleness. For those who You know someday will be married, be preparing their hearts purifying their actions and their minds and their deeds until you bring them to the place where there is a proper and good and beautiful giving away of their bodies to someone in the covenant of marriage. We pray for our children that they would be seeing the beauty of marriage. Father, because of sin, marriage is perhaps the hardest most difficult, and in our day and age, certainly the most messed up relationship anybody can see anywhere. Because of sin, in the close intimacy of marriage, we see great harm. We see unimaginable dysfunction. But Lord may your people who know Christ as Savior display a wholly different story. May those who surround us say, there is something beautiful about the relationship of those two. And I pray that our children would soak it in and see it. That they would see the goodness of the Lord in the marriages in in this church. And that they would see an image of the relationship of Christ and His church. The husband laying down his life in sacrifice, giving away his body and soul to his wife, loving her with fidelity, protecting her, providing for her, rejoicing in her alone. And I pray that they would see in our wives a willing Submission to the headship of their husbands. It is not knocked off its feet by the criticisms of this world that it doesn't begin to understand that relationship. But I pray that they'd give themselves away, body and soul, to their husbands in beauty. And Lord, that genuine love would mark our relationships. Hear this cry. And for anyone who knows not Christ save Savior, Father, I pray that You'd make it clear to them that You have given Your Son away for the salvation of Your people. And I pray that You'd open their eyes and grant the gift of faith and repentance to come in saving trust and to say, in this one, in Christ, I have found my rest. We pray that you would work to that end among us. In his name, amen.